0: Welcome to this week's Shoot the Moon podcast, broadcasting live and direct from Revenue Rocket World Headquarters in Bloomington, Minnesota. As you know, if you're a regular listener, and maybe if you're not, uh, Revenue Rocket is the world's premier growth strategy and M&A advisory for tech-enabled services firms. With me today
1: are my partners, Ram Burnett and Matt Lockhart. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here. Good to be with you. It's uh, It's kind of moving things to uh to deal close season and uh we we we've sort of been reminiscing on that topic and and Ryan you've come up with a great one so looking looking forward to it what's going on Ryan
2: hey guys uh, and thanks for for all our listeners for for submitting questions and and uh talking to us it really means a lot to us and yeah i think it is deal season and and it's it's a great time of season And one of the things we we always come back to is how making sure that sellers and buyers are understand a clear path of what's going to happen in a transaction. And then we talk a lot about in the process about uh, the early parts, about what to expect in finding the right uh, buyer and finding uh, and going through that outreach and, and the right portion to come to an LOI and agree to deal terms. But uh, we oftentimes a, a big portion of the deal really sits in the post letter of intent stage as you're working through due diligence. So we wanted to, to, you know, you've done a lot of the hard work of finding a suitor and there's an LOI that you've agreed to. We really want to walk through some of the major steps you're going to go through as you get towards that uh, deal close. And I'm going to start out with uh, the concept that. You've agreed to a, a non-binding letter of intent. And portion of that is, it's often going to say something like uh, subject to due diligence. And Mike, when, let's get us started on, um, you know, what is, what's that life look like, uh, you know, after that LOI is assigned?
0: Yeah, sure thing, Ryan. Well, <clears throat> certainly, um, you know, you should know that it's going to take about 90 days to get from letter of intent signing to close. You know, you can move more quickly or sometimes a little more slowly, but on average it's about a 90 day journey. Um, and it's going to involve a lot of, of digging deep in the archives and records of your business um, in order to satisfy the inquiries and uh inspections, if you will, of a buyer. Um, they're going to want to look at a lot of what we'll call forensic data, right, financials and planning and corporate records and employee documents and board charts and benefits summaries and you name it, right, Um, either compilation or audit results if you've done those with your accountant, uh, as well as, you know, go-to-market and marketing and sales data. It's all stuff that – um you know, buyers want to know. Um, I guess we could say inquiring minds want to know, not only because they just want to see if you have it, which I think in some cases sellers believe that is the case. Um, it has a lot much much more to do with, you know, how do they get up to speed on your business and then contemplate either an integration strategy uh, with an existing platform or business and or, or plan for the future. Um, how you can go forward together because remember that uh, a primary reason for doing a deal uh, if you're a seller and if you're a buyer is for um, getting to a place together that you can't get apart and oftentimes those ideas and the thesis of that and sort of the genesis of how to best do that come from the diligence effort, uh come from the meetings and Interviews with your, yourself and key staff and review of all of those documents that, that genesis is a work in progress and, and really does have to come through a diligence effort. Um, and it's one that, you know, will be comprehensive and will require a lot of work on the seller's part. But you have to remember it requires the same amount or, or more in some cases, uh, amount of work on the buyer's part. So, Everyone is uh, going hammer and tongs on it during
2: the diligence effort. Yeah, and, and when we see some of those due diligence lists and, and we issue them ourselves on one on the buy side, it's a fairly daunting list. Um, and sometimes that's paired up with a quality of earnings report. Matt, do you have any advice on what sellers go through, you know, even emotionally or tactically, uh, on when they receive that list, you know, what are some ways to start uh, working through it and, and, and tackling some of these challenges? <laughs>
1: well, uh, you know, consistently, I think there's a, a sitting back in the chair moment and kind of going, whoa, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't had a project plan like this hit, hit my desk in, in a while. So to, you know, it, it can be a lot of information, right. And, You know, I think that, uh, a couple of things that, that we counsel on early on, right, is to, is to not be overwhelmed because of the, just the amount that is on the, the request list to, to start to divide and conquer. Uh, with your team and your team includes your advisors, right? And legal and your accountants as well as some of your key management staff. So that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you are, you're dividing it up accordingly and then you know also it, it, just because there's a request for information it doesn't mean that it's always applicable so the very first thing that that we you know advise sellers to do and and buyers recognize this is to simply go through the list and 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 start crossing things off that aren't applicable to to your business so, um, you know, kind of back to that project plan, that project plan mentality is who, who's responsible and then when are they going to have the time? And so you can also start to manage expectations to the other party in terms of when they are going to start to see information. The worst thing that happens is, is it freezes people up. Right. They're like, oh, man, this is so big and so daunting that I can't even get going. And that, you know, that's not the that's 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 obviously not the way to start the game.
2: Yeah, that, that steady approach, I think, is critical and not being overwhelmed. Uh, I think we we do see that in that list. If It's literally hundreds of questions. Uh, a lot of those questions are pretty fairly easy to answer inside. Uh, It brings up some points that in order to go through a successful transaction, you do have to have your your business books in order and you have to have your contracts in order and you have to have your agreements in order. And if you've been running a successful business and uh, as you've grown and it's been something uh, well-documented and well-planned, those due diligence requests are going to be a normal course of business. There are some things that you're going to look for, like, uh, for example, uh, maybe a secretary of state filing. You just don't really deal with a lot of corporate records every day. But if you do have a, a method and a methodology for uh, finding and executing upon bond, those things uh, can make that process uh, quite a bit uh, easier. Um, if we kind of assume and, and, and let's say we get that diligence work and we're starting to come through it and a buyer starts to see something of of caution and they would like to address that area, what what happens? Mike, I'm, I'll turn that over to you to start here. Uh, what let's say there's a discrepancy in in what we thought uh, pre LOI was going into it, and, and we're we're finding some differences. What should a seller expect uh, when it comes to that next step?
0: Well, I think it's important to note that you know a letter is non-binding in its in the terms portion of that. Uh, document. I think a lot of people, you know, really want to hang their hat on the fact that everything that's going to happen in this transaction is in the letter of intent. And I, I would just tell you that that is not the case. Um, it is akin to a handshake between a buyer and seller on price and terms with an agreement uh, that a seller will not continue to market their business typically. It's not always the case, but that lockout is typically in there. We've talked about that in past podcasts. So you should know that's pursuant to the information that a buyer has analyzed. If they find a difference in that information uh, or you're a buyer and you happen to find a variance of that information or more detail, that causes that information to be proven to either be inaccurate or was perceived incorrectly by the buyer. And it's likely that that's going to drive what's called a retrade. Um, and a retrade is when a buyer says, hey, uh, I thought I was buying this, but it looks like I'm buying that, which is different. And we need to figure out how we can still come together with either a different price or different terms or both. And I would recommend uh, as a seller, uh, that you stay open-minded about that and that you bring in your advisor, your M&A advisor, uh, to lead that discussion and lead that negotiation. And the reason why that is is because it's easy to get emotional about the uh, the transaction at that time and just throw your hands up and say, well, that buyer is trying to take advantage of me. Or if you're a buyer, a seller may feel that way. I think a a strong advisor can help, uh, bring the edge to the the edges to the middle, if you will, or build a bridge as, as my partner Matt likes to say, uh, between the varying opinions and analysis that may have come to light in the due diligence and still get to a win-win deal. Um, and so I, I would not, um, consider the deal to be dead or even Push the panic button, as some sellers do, uh, when it looks like there's going to be something that was discovered in diligence that was not uh, even potentially conceived uh, in the early phase diligence up to LOI. And the takeaways there are just be open-minded about the other side's perspective, try to walk them on their shoes, and leverage your advisor to help you through.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough when that situation arises. And I think both buyers and sellers, if they're committed to the deal, we want to refer back to that LOI, but it, and again, understanding the non-binding nature of it. And that can be a very difficult discussion. And uh, I think the creative solution wins here. And we've certainly seen that in, in a lot of cases where uh, as we learn more, we're going to make some adjustment. Um, no deal gets done without a willing buyer and a willing seller. So there there could be points in which uh, perhaps it, the deal does come apart. But overall, I would, I'd think to uh, keep things moving and keep things towards the goal in mind uh, of a completed transaction is, is imperative here. If we, if we start to think that uh, we've gone through substantial due diligence and maybe even a quality of earnings report. And, uh, you've, you've examined the fact that a deal, uh, could have different deal terms to it. And you, if you come to agreement on those uh, deal terms. It starts to get to a point where, uh, legal starts to get engaged to working through a definitive agreement. And, uh, and Matt, I'd love to get your start on, uh, you know, what should a seller expect, um, for receiving, uh, a purchase agreement and, and what should, what steps should they take, uh, when uh, working with their counsel to start ingesting that, that uh, document and what it means to them.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, even before that, right. I mean, it's uh, and, you know, we've we've certainly stressed and reinforced this in in the past, but uh, uh, making sure that that you've got, you know, a a very experienced uh, uh, transactional, you know, lawyer in place is 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 something to be done, you know, pretty much immediately. Now some would say that they'd want that lawyer to, to review the LOI. Um, there could be something to that, but oftentimes it's, it's really not necessary, but that's the, that's really the first thing that, you know, from a post LOI perspective, we counsel, um, that the most effective means of, of, you know, managing the, the legalities of a transaction is to, is to get both Legal parties talking sooner rather than later. So, you know, facilitating an introduction, um, making sure that everybody is on the same page with, with what contracts are going to be applicable for this particular sale. So, for example, is it an asset purchase? Is it a, is it a share purchase? Uh, is a seller rolling equity, which is going to then have a, um, you know, additional documentation in place and then for the sellers to work with their counsel as to understanding what are the material aspects of a purchase agreement that are going to be negotiated and are are going to be you know very important to the the seller party and what are quite honestly the non-material um, pieces that uh, aren't as important and, um, aren't as critical. Uh, you know, there's, uh, as, as we see, um, it can be, you know, relatively easy and, and, uh, painless. And at other times it can be really quite painful. And, and oftentimes it just does come down to, um, making sure that there's a good communication path in place. And everybody, you know, keeps in mind that the intent is to get the deal done and move on as quickly as possible, so that uh, the the new company and the the new partners can can go start making hay in the marketplace.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that we've learned is that it's critical to work uh, on those definitive agreements uh, compared to kind of rehashing the, an LOI. And uh, where the work and engaging your counsel becomes critical on uh, making sure that we have those definitive agreements that that won't change uh, ultimately when they're done. There's going to be a lot of back and forth and and there's going to be a lot of red lines. Expect turns from your lawyer uh, and from both sides that are going to be working towards um, getting a deal done and there might be some deal trades and deal points, um, more, you're having an advisor in the middle there that makes sure that you're covering the major items while looking at the large portion of, of the deal is critical. Um, there's going to be a lot of also things that, that are ancillary that come with that definitive agreement. that will bring up something like uh, employment agreements or uh, rent or uh, lease lease agreements or building sales. Uh, those are all things to start to think about that as Matt mentioned, it's not just one document, it might be a series of documents that that start to get there. But there'll be points in which you have to negotiate uh um throughout uh and and bring things together. Um Mike, one of the things I'll, I'll throw over to you is uh when we think about this process and you're starting to craft those definitive agreements, uh part of this is um really understanding the forecast for the future, and part of this gets a little bit perhaps into some post-merger integration, but what impacts do running your business today and having those forecasts for the future go, and and what things should sellers look forward as they're going through this um, definitive agreement process, and how does the forecast uh, for the future um, come into play?
0: Well, the forecast for the future, you know, has to be well thought out and well contemplated um and not really be a wish. Uh it needs to be as much of a plan as possible. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Um is that um you know, having a solid forecasting methodology and a forecast that is uh attainable build confidence in your buyer and help you structure any what we'll call gain share or contingent share type arrangements um, in a way where you'll be much more likely to make the number. I think we've seen people, um, you know, on both sides of a deal sometimes get a little bit of happy years around their forecast, meaning they're planning for something that's more aspirational than probably factual. And it comes back to bite them if there's a component to the transaction that is contingent, uh, whether that be an earnout or some sort of a gain share milestone or some sort of conversion uh opportunity tied to performance uh for equity. And if you're going to uh use this. Uh, forecast and and have that be the basis for those uh, types of arrangements, you want it to be as factual and likely to occur as possible. I think what's also important from a buyer's perspective, and you need to be aware of this if you're a seller and a buyer, is that buyers analyze that forecast um, vis-a-vis their internal rate of return analysis to look at when they can expect to see a return. And, you kind of owe it to your buyer if you're a seller, uh, to be factual about those numbers so that they can confidently enter a transaction, um, with the, uh, a high degree of confidence that they're going to be able to get to an IRR that makes sense. We've certainly seen situations, uh, where sellers have been very, uh, very aggressive about their forecasts. Um, and then it comes back to uh, creating a sort of a situation where the buyers are unhappy uh, and the sellers ultimately become unhappy because they can't make their you know, contingent payment or earn out payment numbers um, because they were either over forecasted or aggressively leaning in in an effort to kind of come up with a, a false sense of value. And so I would encourage sellers and buyers to vet those forecasts uh, as much as they can and to really come to them with a sense of reality um, and a sense of, uh, yeah, we can make that number happen because we've historically done it um, and feel good about it based on our front log and backlog and our current sales pipeline and it's supported with data. So that everyone can come out at the end of the transaction, achieving the objectives that they went uh, that they saw
2: going in. Yeah, that makes and that makes a ton of sense, um, Matt. I'm going to transition over to a, a topic here that is, is is difficult. And you know, if we think about leaders here to four, and we we'll go through that process where you've gone through the due diligence. A lot of that you might be alone. You might have a financial person there, but a lot of the due diligence might be alone. Uh, if you go through, uh, some of the legal, uh, back and forth, you're going to have your, your, your accountant and your lawyer by your side. But again, uh, you're a little bit alone. Buyers get to a critical point in a transaction in which they want to meet more of your team and, and sellers should be expected that, uh, that team introduction and and keeping the team motivated and happy throughout the process is critical. Matt, you know when should sellers expect for buyers to meet that team, and what are some things that they can do to to make that a, a great uh, interaction and, and something that for uh, that's positive for both buyers and and uh, and team members.
1: Well, you know, it, it, I, I don't think there's a, a one size fits all, right, to this. I, it, to some extent, it depends upon, you know, the size of an organization. So the, the, the bigger the organization, um, the, the more executive management team members, uh, are going to be, you know, sort of in the mix, in the know, and likely part of the process and then naturally part of the, you know, uh, pre-close integration planning, you know, uh, growth planning, you know, discussions for a smaller company, uh, you know, founder led business that, you know, he's, he's started to build aspects of his, his, uh, you know, executive management team. Um, but then maybe there's a, a, a another group of, of uh, sort of middle managers that aren't in the know and and you really don't want to distract them. Um well, some of the executive team members likely are going to be engaged earlier. Um you know, and when we say earlier if a uh, if that uh, LOI period post LOI period is 90 days as as Mike reinforced, um you know, maybe it's 45 days in that that some of those team members start to be engaged, you know, which happens to correspond with the validation of financials, the validation of contracts, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, for those, you know, sort of middle management team members, and and you know, obviously the organization as a whole. You know, we've, we've talked about this before. You know, we, we believe that it's, uh, it's important not to distract the organization with, uh, early announcements and, uh, and the like. Um, because again, a deal isn't done until a deal's done. And, uh, and also there's a, you know a natural reaction by people to say you know what does this mean to me right i don't want to change and and it's it ultimately it's just a distraction so um no 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 sort of one size fits all uh somewhat dependent upon the team uh and the size of the organization um but you know again um, probably in the latter half of the process is is when you know those discussions become more meaningful and more real.
2: Yeah, yeah great point, great point. And, and Matt, keeping with you, if you think about uh, you know if we're near that uh, the meeting of teams and you're in, and people are getting together that oftentimes mean also means that you're into a point of a deal in which one of the more contentious. Uh, uh things will come out, which is establishing uh working capital. And this is always something based on even its definition, it's gonna happen near the end of the deal. But uh Matt, what are some kind of best practices to even introducing that working capital so it's not uh so it's not a surprise to everyone.
1: Um yeah. I uh, you know we we actually think that it 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 shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> Sometimes it is. Uh, it, but early on determining what the, what sort of the, the structure and the framework, the logic, if you will, to determining what is working capital and gaining agreement upon that logic, uh, between both parties is something that we found to be, uh, super effective, right? Um, and, and so then, um, you know, both, Both sides can have their respective financial people prepared for what's coming and the owners to be prepared for what's coming. And then, you know, once you've got that logic in place and that framework in place, then it's a, then it's really a matter of, of running that against the historical, you know, numbers. Um, you know, sort of the, be it the, the six month average working capital or sometimes the 12 month average working capital. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, relatively easily and without pain, you should be able to determine what your, uh, what your peg is for the working capital of the needs moving forward. Now, early on, If you if it's determined that there's just a a big disagreement in terms of the logic in terms of how you arrive at a working capital peg, then, you know, that's something that you can hit, you know, head on so that there's uh, less pain later in the process.
2: Yeah, I think for seller just coming in, understanding you're going to have to keep some cash in the business. It is critical to know, and then once you come to an agreement, I think everyone else gets on the same page. Uh, But it is critical to be aware of and understand that that it's going to be a point that uh, there will be some back and forth on, and ultimately you're going to settle on a number that you both agree upon. And and if I look at this, again, through the stage here, and we're getting almost near the the later stages of a deal, but Mike, something that we've seen a lot on his uh, lately has been uh sellers really trying to to get ready for the all the schedules that might be used uh in a definitive agreement so Mike, Mike, what what should sellers be prepared for when it comes to uh schedules and what are they I and mean, what should they be prepared for
0: well um, in order for uh the legal agreement to be binding um the terms of that agreement are within what's called the four corners of the agreement. They need to be uh, either attached or part of the agreement. Uh, And and I don't want to say physically because sometimes it's done digitally, but more often than not, it's physically attached to be considered to be part of the four corners of the agreement. And usually schedules are referenced in the document, uh, for things that um, are important. And I would say schedules include things like your contracts, uh, usually copies of your active contracts as an example, because that's part of what's being acquired. They may include customer lists. Uh, they may include um, employment agreements. Uh, they may include a definitive copy of your financial statements as referenced in the agreement. Uh, they may include any any agreements pursuant to trade agreements. And so I might point to one like a lease for something in your office or a vehicle. Um, and I can keep going. There's plenty of things that could be part of schedules um, that need to be collated and assembled in a way that they can be attached to the agreement. It's very seldom that a seller um will um uh, overestimate the amount of time needed to prepare them. They generally underestimate the amount of time. It is a it is something that typically happens at the very late stages of uh the due diligence process as part of assembling the definitive agreements. Um and I would encourage you because it's typically way more work than you think it's gonna be to get started on it early, to ask for, if you're a seller, the buyer's list of schedules that they're going to want to have attached to the definitive agreement so that you can begin to pull those things together. Um, And, you know, uh, obviously they may or may not have been analyzed by the buyer in a due diligence effort. Um, so, uh, even if they have, oftentimes you pointed to, uh, to a share directory somewhere for your contracts, for example, and they may have been analyzed by the buyer, but now they physically have to be attached to the agreement. Now, sometimes, you know, a buyer will allow you to just attach a reference to those, that share, uh, area, but, um, I would say more often than not, they have to physically be, um, collated and attached in a way that's meaningful. Um, now, since today most times we close deals, we do it with digital documents It may not be as uh, daunting as it might have been in the old days. I can remember where we do deals and we would print out, you know, hundreds of pages of documents and big stacks at a law firm somewhere and put them around a board table and everybody would show up there and, you know, sign 10 versions of the agreements and uh, then consider the deal close. Those days are kind of gone now um, because we just distribute agreements electronically and collate it accordingly. But it still means that you will have to identify all of those documents and be able to produce them electronically to be attached to the purchase agreement. Um, I think the takeaway here is it will take many, many hours to assemble them, and just be prepared um, that that is something that needs to be done. Uh, you cannot close without finalizing and completing the schedules as portended in the agreement. And most of that work, if not all of that work, will fall upon the seller.
2: Yeah, I think it's. I think Mike, you're, you're outlining that it shouldn't be a surprise, but it, it still will be. If there's just that much work at the end. And so it's a matter of tackling some of that as you can and, uh, also understanding that you're going to, it's going to be that crunch time where you feel really solid that this deal is going to get done in the terms and price and timing that everyone expects. So I think, uh, it's just critical to understand there's going to be that last mile is going to be a, a tough one. Um, the other thing I'll just note here, uh, you know, there's a lot of steps that are throughout here. But after you get uh, to that near, near that end, and, and this is something that we'll go throughout is just, uh, kind of post integration planning. So as deals come to fruition and, and, we all feel good that everything's getting done, uh, start looking to the future of what life looks like, um, going forward, uh, after, after the business combination happens. So if I was to rewind this a little bit and I start with an LOI and I, we, we've got an agreed upon LOI. Uh, the next step, you're going to get that. Essentially, most of the time, you'll get a big due diligence list, uh, start working through that, that diligence list, and, and be responsive to to the sellers. Um, that might come with a, a quality of earnings. Uh, after that diligence is, is complete or even in process, there may be a chance for a renegotiation of the deal. Just be pre- prepared that some buyers and sellers may want to realign on some of the minor points and maybe even major points. Uh, make sure your advisors really, really locked into that process. Um, throughout, you're going get, to get data requests, and they may come from various portions of your team. So uh, just make sure that uh, you're addressing those uh, uh, data requests as they come through. Uh, even they may be outside of a formal due diligence list. Uh, I heard, uh, be prepared to be working through in employment agreements. Uh, be prepared to look at your forecast. Uh, be prepared to look at uh, uh, all sorts of areas of your business. Is that will all come to light in a definitive agreement? Um, and through that definitive agreement, you'll establish things like working capital. You'll have ancillary agreements like employment agreements, ancillary things like rent and and uh, lease agreements. Um, ultimately, you're, you're working together towards um, you know a finalized deal, uh, and that deal is going to come with uh, things like working in capital and ultimately putting schedules together and finally putting things together with um, post-integration planning. There's a lot to to uncover within this topic, and again, you get uh, typically between 60 and 90 days that this is all going to happen in, so it it will feel like a a heck of a whirlwind as you work through it. So, you know, really work towards that closed date, really understand that 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 LOI was really non-binding, and things will change um prepare yourself for a lot of lonely work <laughs> until you get to that end end step and then I'll just remind you and we've said this many many times before but throughout you got to keep a steady hand on the tiller and you got to run the business like it's not for sale and it's just critical to make sure that um that y- y- buyers are 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 interested in your business and how it's going forward and it's critical that you leave it in a good spot as it's done uh matt and michael turn it over to you is there uh that summary anything else you want to add
1: uh you you did a great job summarizing there ryan I, i i'll just say you know it is important also to manage your um manage your health and your mental health throughout the process so um it is a busy time uh emotions uh you know tend to to ebb and flow a bit. So, you know, manage the, manage yourself and, uh, work with your advisor, get a little bit of time throughout the process, uh, so that you're in the, you're in the right frame of mind. And, and remember, you entered into an LOI with intent because that intent was, um, you know, based upon seeing a great opportunity for, for you and your team. Mike, what's going on? Well,
0: you know, I would also add that keep in mind that due diligence in many ways is looking for reasons why not to do the deal. And I think you'll come to a logical point in the transaction where you pivot to integration planning or the future. And that's when you can start to look at all the great reasons of why you contemplated this deal to begin with. And you can put all of the. Uh, work hard work of the uh diligence portion uh behind you and uh, that's a great day and typically that pivot comes as you get closer to close on uh, the last week or so and I would encourage you to keep your nose to the grindstone to get all the hard stuff done so you can as quickly as you can get to that day when you can look up and say Yep, we're closing this deal within a week and we can now begin to look at the future being brighter together than it was apart. Let's go get it. So with that, we'll tie a ribbon on it for this week's podcast. And, uh, thanks for tuning in. Appreciate all, uh, big, uh, shout out to all of our loyal listeners and, uh, go corral all your, uh, friends and relatives in the industry and tell them to come take a listen. I uh, encourage you to tune in next week. We unpack further topics of, um, of relevance to uh, tech-enabled services
2: companies around growth strategy and M&A. Take care and make it a great week.